Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening to all of you, wherever in the world you may be. Welcome to the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute's presentation of Grace Aniza Ali's book, Liminal Spaces, Migration and Women of the Guyanese Diaspora. I'm Anne Morning. I'm the academic director at 19 Washington Square North, which is NYU Abu Dhabi's home in New York. And I'm delighted to be able to introduce to you our two panelists today. I'm going to start with, um, with Professor Onika LaBennett, who will serve as the discussant, the person in conversation with, uh, with our author. Uh, professor LaBennett is a social anthropologist and an associate professor of American studies and ethnicity at the University of Southern California. She is the editor of Racial Formation in the 21st Century, published by the University of California Press in 2012. And she is the author of She's Mad Real, Popular Culture and West Indian Girls in Brooklyn, published by NYU Press in 2011. She's Mad Real is an ethnography of Caribbean adolescent girls in Brooklyn that focuses on their mediations of identity vis-a-vis popular culture. La Bennett, who was born in Guyana and raised in Brooklyn, is now currently working on a new manuscript entitled Global Guyana, Women, Race, and Resources in the Caribbean and Beyond, which traces the entwined histories of Guyanese women of African and Indian descent, and it explores family, ethnicity, and race in Guyana and in its diaspora, as well as popular culture associations between the Caribbean and sexuality. These themes and more, I'm sure, are no doubt uh, part and parcel of her course on her course entitled Women in Hip Hop, which I just, I had to mention uh, because Elle Magazine ranked it among the top 10 uh, in a list of college classes that give us hope for the next generation. So not many people can claim that. So I wanted to be, <laughs> to make sure to, to mention that. Um, now I'm delighted to turn to our author today, Grace Aniza Ali. Um, professor Ali is a curator and an assistant professor and provost fellow in the Department of Art and Public Policy at NYU's Tisch School of the Arts. She's also an affiliated faculty member with the Asian Pacific American Institute. Professor Ali's curatorial research practice centers on curatorial activism, socially engaged art practices, global contemporary art, and the art of the Caribbean diaspora with a focus on her ham- homeland of Guyana. She serves as curator at large for the Caribbean Cultural Center's African Diaspora Institute in New York. She is the founder and editorial director of Of Note Magazine, which is an award-winning nonprofit arts journalism initiative that reports on the intersection of art and activism. And her other awards, including being named a Fulbright Scholar, an Andy Warhol Foundation Curatorial Fellow, and a World Economic Forum Global Shaper. Finally, Professor Ali serves as a mentor for Girls Right Now, a leader in arts and writing education for underserved girls in New York City. So with that, I want to extend a very warm welcome to both of our panelists and just say how much we're looking forward to the the conversation between the two of you. Thank you for being here. 
Thank you, Anne, for that beautiful and generous introduction to both of us and also for your incredible support and enthusiasm for this book before it was even published. So thank you so much for that. Thank you both. Thank you, Anne. That was a wonderful introduction. And so I think I'm going to get, get us started. I, I wanna, is that right, Grace? Yes. So I, I wanna start by thanking Anne for that great introduction again and thanking NYU Abu Dhabi for this opportunity to be in conversation with Grace Ali uh, about her wonderful book. I, I wanna start by emphasizing that, you know, this book begins with a statement about how the artists and writers in liminal spaces are part of a contemporary movement to disrupt and challenge narratives of the region, specifically Guyana, but of the region more broadly speaking. And as Anne alluded uh, in her introduction, Grace Anisa Ali has been a leader in that movement for quite some time. So liminal spaces can be seen as the culmination, although that may not be the right word because I know she's going to continue and do so much more, but it's the culmination of years of bringing the art of Guyana to uh, global cities like New York. So from a conversation that she organized at the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture in 2014 called Visually Speaking, a Worldview from Guyanese Photographers to a major exhibition that she curated at the Caribbean Cultural Center African Diaspora Institute in 2017 on Guyanese artists. Grace has been leading this movement. She is an innovator and a leading voice. And this book, Liminal Spaces, is an incredible contribution. I, I want us to really understand the significance of this work because it does so much. It's shining a light on a diasporic group that is often either ignored or marginalized, even though Guyanese represents such significant numbers in global cities like New York and London and Toronto. And among that group, Guyanese women are particularly marginalized, even though they're central players. So that's one of the book's really um, important contributions. It's shining a light on those groups. It's also speaking to broader questions around citizenship, immigrants and migration, what those experiences are like, how, how they're constituted, what are the uh, challenges and dialogues that go along with those, um, those notions of citizenship migration. Uh, so Brace is also bringing that to the forefront in this volume. The fact that this volume is multimodal is one of the reasons why it's such an important contribution. It's bringing together memoir, poetry, visual art, um, curatorial essays in this wonderful exhibition on the page. And to do this with 15 women of the Guyanese diaspora spanning generations is really a unique, uh, one of a kind contribution. So I, I want to also say that those many hats that Grace talks about in the introduction to this, this book, that of curator, editor, essayist, daughter of Guyana, immigrant herself, 
she's really placing herself within this text in such an intimate and powerful way and using all of those positionalities to bring these remarkable stories and these remarkable works um, to a broader audience. And I think in this way for the first time. So I, I wanna make sure that that contribution is understood because it's really uh, such an original book. I know it's, it's already making such a splash in, in so many different contexts, but it will be uh, in classrooms and in conversations and in discourses about Guyana and about the Caribbean and about these global cities for a very long time to come. So I, I think that one of the contributions of the book is a great place maybe for us to start before Grace um, transitions into showing us some of the images from, from the text. Part two of the book focuses on arcs of migration, those who left and those who are left behind. And I know that's one of the things that um, Grace and I is going to, are, are going to talk about today because that's a part of the migration story that's often left out. We tend to focus on those who leave, but we tend not to uh, spend so much time writing about, talking about those who are left behind. And the book does this so beautifully. So I'll stop there and I'll let you share some images and, and then we can continue the conversation. Onika, you went all the way back to 2014. <laughs> <laughs> I had to, yes. <laughs> um, that was incredibly generous and thoughtful. And thank you so much for those words of support, but also throughout you know, the last few years, I've been such an admirer of your scholarship and the important work that you've been doing to elevate the stories of Guyana, which is truly brilliant, generative, innovative work. And I know we've collaborated on other projects before and exhibitions, and this is just another thing that we can collaborate on. But I just want you to know how much I greatly admire the work that you're doing and your incredible time to, to, first of all, spend time with this project and to be in conversation with me about it. Thank you. Oh, thank you. It's such a pleasure. It really is. So what I want to do for our folks watching is just to share a few highlights, uh, not the entire, uh, everyone in the book, but a few highlights of, of the book, um, because it really is, I think, such a visual feast um, throughout its, all of its chapters. So I'm going to share my screen really quickly. And um, as Onika mentioned, I had to wear all of, you know, all of these hats. This was a very personal project as well as uh, its attempt to be a scholarly project, an artistic project, a literary project. Um, and so I really wanted to shape the book, not only as an editor, but also with a curatorial perspective in mind. And so we brought these 15 women together, a very intergenerational group of women ranging from their 70s to, to their 20s and ranging from being literally in Guyana to being in Guyana's diaspora in the United States and Canada and in the UK. And so the book is organized in this four-part journey and it's tracing the migration path of women from that initial moment of departure to their arrivals, to what it takes to transition and to adapt 
into these new diasporic soils. And then we end the book with returning to Guyana and what that return reverse migration actually entails. And the first part of the book starts with the section called Mothering Lands. And in it, Three, there are three women who are all first-generation daughters. They're first-generation Canadians and Americans. And what they have in common is all of their mothers were born in Guyana. And what they really do in this section is examine um, what, how those Guyanese-born mothers serve as a metaphor for their relationship with that Guyana. So they can't really separate mothers from from Guyana and they're wrestling with Guyana as this also this mythical motherland. And so we start the book with Keisha Scarville's beautiful portraiture series titled Mama's Clothes and she pays homage to her late mother. And in the portrait, Scarville is embodying her mother's dresses, these beautiful bright prints to evoke her connection to Guyana. Erica De Freitas is a Toronto-based uh, artist whose grandmother was a very skilled baker in uh, what was then British Guyana in the 1950s and would then pass down that skill to Erica's mother and then later Erica. And in this essay, De Freitas is just so beautiful and poignant in expanding on how she uses this craft of icing cakes from her grandmother as an important symbol in her work and in her language. And we, that part of the book ends with uh, this beautiful back and forth between mother and daughter, Serena and Natalie Hopkinson. Um, one of my favorite parts of working on this project was to see these, they write letters back and forth to each other and to, as an editor to see how this particular part of the book evolved and grew was such a beautiful experience. And Natalie Hopkinson and Serena Hopkinson have had several migrations across three countries, Guyana, Canada, and the United States. And they've gained a lot in those migratory paths, but they also lost a lot. And so they write these beautiful, honest, vulnerable letters to each other at times revealing things to each other for the first time um, about what that experience, what that migration experience was for them. The second part of the book, as uh, Onika mentioned earlier, was a part of the project that was really, really critical for me. And this, this part called The Ones Who Leave, The Ones Who Are Left. And what I've been talking about for a long time, both personally and in my scholarship, is that there are two spectrums of the migration arc the ones who leave and the ones who are left, that the act of migration is very much an act of reciprocity and that to leave a place, we have to reconcile that we must leave others behind. And as Onika said, too often we aren't talking about the narratives and the stories and the, and the experiences of the people that are left because their stories get eclipsed by the ones doing the leaving. And so in, uh, in my chapter titled The Geography of Separation, 
I talk about what it means to have left Guyana um, to almost 25 years ago, more than 25 years ago. And I really try to grapple with the ways that I've entered into people's lives and that I've departed into departed people's lives and what I got wrong in a lot of, a lot of those cases and perhaps uh, own up to the, the, that accountability and the responsibility of not being sensitive enough um, in my own departures and arrivals of the people that I was, I was leaving. Um, Khadija Ben is a very talented photographer uh, based in Georgetown, Guyana, and she uh, has shared these beautiful portraits of our elder Amerindian women whose descendants have long migrated to border countries like Venezuela, Brazil, to the United States and Canada, and even to neighboring islands in the Caribbean. And yet these women make the choice to stay or are forced to stay. Meanwhile, their children, their grandchildren, sometimes even their great-grandchildren have left the country. And these portraits are stunning. Some of these women were born in 19, as, as, as uh, old as 1930s in Guyana. And so they've seen Guyana evolve from a British colony to an independent nation, to a post-independent nation. So they, they're really incredible witnesses to Guyana's history. And a chapter I know has a lot of personal um, resonance with Amika and her own story, which I, I hope you'll share um, later. Um, Ingrid Griffith explores the rupture migration in Axon families when children are split apart from their parents and how that separation reverberates years after that first moment of departure. And it's also a narrative we rarely see, and that is what the act of leaving means for a child and how it becomes an open wound of abandonment. And I know that now in our political climate, we're beginning to understand the impact of separating children from their parents as we see what has happened on the American-Mexican borders too. So it's something that I was really intent on making sure that we, um, we engaged in this book. Uh, part three is called Transitions, and it focuses on how women uh, have to unfold that life in a past land to construct a life in a new land and what that entails. And in these selection of essays in this part, we witness how through migration, Guyanese women are made, they're remade, they're unmade, and then they have to do it, you know, all over again. And this is the work of artist Suchitra Matai, who's also had a fascinating migratory path from Guyana to Canada to the United States. And she uses her work to illustrate the liminal space of disorientation when one has to transition through these multiple cultural spheres. And, and finally, we end the book with that, a part called Returns, Reunions, and Rituals. And in these essays, explore the returns to Guyana and the ways in which we remain tethered, physically tethered, psychically tethered to this place and to our family legacies there. And this is a beautiful memoir essay by um, the London-based writer Maria del Pilar Caladine, whose father came to the UK 
through the Windrush uh, migratory movement. And she writes this essay of returning to Guyana with her father for the first time in 45 years. And in their intertwined story, um, they really illustrate the fractures and the fissures migration creates in relationships. But in the case of Maria, it also shows her incredible willpower to rebuild not only a bridge between these two lands, but rebuild a bridge between a father and a daughter. So I'll stop uh, sharing there. And um, those are just some highlights. Again, there are 15 incredibly talented women in this book. And I will put a link in the chat. The book is open access, so anyone can access the PDF and HTML version of the book um, anytime you wish. So I'll make sure I add that into the chat. Thank you for that, Grace. And, and people really should um, access the book because as Grace said, there are ways in which this book tells the unique stories of the Guyanese diaspora, but they are these stories are also relevant and Guyana is such an important place from which we can kind of look out to um, broader um, issues like migration, like family separation, so you talked about this and, you know, I mentioned it in, in my opening that centering the stories of those who remain and the relationship between those who leave and those who are left is one of the critical interventions of this book. It's both a really touching acknowledgement of kinship and family and connection, but it's also a valuable contribution to our scholarly understandings of migration because that arc between who left and who um, who leaves and who's left behind is often not um, the subject of scholarship. So that would be a great place for us to begin. And you show the photograph uh, of Ingrid Griffin and her uh, two siblings, her her brother and sister, uh, after their her mother sent them their Christmas outfits, right uh, after being separated, and as I mentioned that that image really resonated not only with my own experience, but also with the girls um, about whom I wrote in my first book, She's Mad Real. That's such a common story of uh, migration from the Caribbean, more broadly speaking, and definitely from Guyana in particular where parents often left uh, to establish themselves in places like New York to get their papers, their quote unquote papers, and to be able to sponsor uh, their children from back home. In that time period when the parents were uh, in New York, ch children were often raised by grandmothers, aunts, um, and, and that's a really uh, painful period of family separation. It's one in which there are remittances sent home and barrels filled with toys and clothing and all sorts of things. And so the girls in my book talked about that frequently. And it's certainly part of my own personal story. My parents left Guyana when I was a year old. And my brother and I didn't see them again until I was seven and a half and he was 14. And so in all of those years in between, we were raised by my grandmother and we got clothes just like Ingrid Griffith did from New York. Oftentimes, they were not really appropriate for the seasons in Guyana. So in the photograph, we see the little boy and those, those three children are so smartly dressed. You know, we have to remark on that. But the little boy is wearing what appears to be kind of a tweed jacket. Uh, the two little girls are wearing the long sleeve dresses. Um, they're completely 
well thought out outfits. We can see the care that their mother put into thinking about the coordinations of the, of the hats and the shoes and, you know, that they all kind of matched each other and were so fashionable uh, for the time period. So there's love communicated in that photograph as well. I'm so, um, well, I'm so glad you shared your own personal story because, you know, in, in a child's understanding you I don't think you were able to grasp mommy and daddy are leaving to make a better life all you know is mommy and daddy have left you right that's that's how you interpret that and I know I, I think my mom had had been having conversations you know we waited about 10 years before our, all of our paperwork was vetted and approved until it was a long kind of waiting but I think she had had that option of could she go ahead first and uh, then, you know, bring her children later? And she chose no. And she chose no because when she was also a young woman, she saw her six siblings all leave Guyana one by one by one by one. Her parents had passed away and she remained the only person left. Mm. And I think because she knew that sense of um, aloneness and maybe a sense of abandonment too, through, through no one's fault, but still those feelings of abandonment are very real. She didn't want to uh, have her children experience that. When I was growing up, and, and we should also say, Amika, that for those folks that are, are not familiar, familiar, Guyana has one of the largest out-migration rates. So, so the uh, Guyana is a very unique and acute experience of migration because, according to the latest data, more people live outside of the country now than live within it. So we have a particularly acute history with folks making an exodus out of the country and moving moving away. And I remember, you know, one year in school reforming really lovely friendships with people. And then the next year they were gone or mid semester, they were gone. And no one explains to you as a child why your friends are no longer there, why your friends keep leaving every year and you have, you're just left with this empty hole. Ingrid's chapter on what it feels like to have to interpret that leaving. We also are part of a culture where adults aren't necessarily sitting children down and speaking to them about, you know, the greater issues at play. My family, we call that big people stories. You know, you don't get, <laughs> you don't, you don't, you don't get to talk about big people stories, even though they impact you very deeply. And so you're left to grapple with that on your own and in your own interpretations. And I hope that Ingrid's story, I know it's inspiring you, I know it has inspired you, Anika, but I hope that Ingrid's story inspires the host of other people who have been on that, that angle of the migration story, where as children, you have to make sense of your parents leaving. Absolutely. Absolutely, Grace. Everything you said is so important. And it's it's also that um, it's really difficult for the parents, too. You know, your mother had to make a very difficult decision, as did mine. And I know that that separation was really hard on my mother uh, to be away from her one-year-old and her seven-year-old when she, when she left Guyana. 
um, was just heart wrenching. And so these are these. This tells the painful stories of separation that so many immigrant families, unfortunately, uh, have experienced. But as you said. There are uh, ways in which it's particularly important in Guyana because so many Guyanese um, have left and continue to leave. Were you were you able to talk about it as a family, even when you got older and you had a you know a, a little bit mature sense of what had happened? Did you all tackle it and talk about it? You know, it's as you mentioned, it's it's not a very culturally <laughs> Guyanese thing to do to have those sorts of conversations. That's a very kind of American, you know, sort of therapeutic approach that we, we never really talked about. We never sat down and talked about it, but it was interesting for me as I got older to learn about um, how my mother suffered through that process. I knew about it from my own um, perspective of feeling left behind, but I didn't know what it meant to her. And she had all of these photographs of herself talking on the phone with us in Guyana. And at the time, you know, we didn't have a phone at my grandmother's house, but my grandmother would take us to Georgetown to call our, our mother. And my mother would have people take her photograph while she was talking to us on the phone. Such an interesting thing, right? This is before um, FaceTime and Zoom. That was sort of her way of documenting those conversations, which I, I found really touching when I learned about them later. That's so, uh, yeah, the documenting the phone calls is really, that's a really, really profound image to even think about. Absolutely. So, I mean, we, we, you know, within that, that section on separation and, and being left behind, you share your story and, you know, I think that, that that's actually a good place for us to turn next because I was really interested in the ways in which Keisha Scarville's Mama's Clothes focused on the objects, right? Clothing as a connection to her mother and a connection to Guyana, as you mentioned uh, with the images you showed previously. In your story, it's your mother's Karahi that is the connection to Guyana and the connection to her mother. And so I thought it was really interesting that there's a thread across the essays in which certain objects come to embody that kind of maternal connection, the connection to the motherland, and there's such poignant and vivid uh, images. So maybe you could talk a little bit about the Karahi and why it was important for you to share that example in your essay. You're absolutely right. I mean, if I had a different, uh, if I could have done a second curatorial shaping of the book, it would have been around the objects that we carried. Um, because for me, it's the pot I'll talk about, the t-shirts, the clothing. Michelle Joan Wilkinson writes a beautiful essay on the jewelry. Um, mm -hmm that was passed down to her that she brought over our letters, our letters and our family photographs that we don't have JPEGs of or double copies of, just the one yellowing originals. Um, so many things that, you know, for us are museum quality things that belong, you know, in museums because they're that valuable and, and such treasures to us. So, um, 
I write about this uh, karahi pot, which my grandmother owned. And so we've been cooking in this pot for the last 50, 60 years. And um, it's this um, karahi is a very typical pot that most Guyanese Guyanese households have and it's influenced from um, the history of Indian indentureship in the Caribbean. And so my grandmother cooked for my mom and her siblings in this pot. My mom cooked for us in this pot. And of all the things on the night that we were leaving, that we decided to stuff the suitcases with this 50 year old pot had to come. And now it's with my mom's house and my sister and I are jockeying over who gets this pot, who gets to inherit this pot. It has no monetary value, but it's an example of that very liminal moment when we're leaving of how we attach value to the things that we're going to carry from the old into the new and the things that we are going to leave. And I would venture to say that if we were to do a whole book on, on everyone, not just Guyanese people, but almost everyone's migration stories and that moment of deciding, you know, are we going to take the clock? Are we going to take this big pot? It's a huge pot that was bulging in the suitcase. Um, I was on another, I was in a book club. We were, the book was part of a book club and an Italian woman was talking about almost a machete that she was trying to sneak into um, because she comes from a family of, of cooks and chefs. And so this Italian immigrant family were trying to figure out how to sneak a machete into the suitcase without getting arrested at TSA. But the idea, this notion of the things that we carry across borders and what we also write about in liminal spaces as women um, is as daughters, the, our mother's things that we have to carry across borders. And that also is a heavy responsibility of deciding, you know, our mother's and our grandmother's things that belong, um, belong to be on the journey with us. Absolutely. And, and you, you tell that story so beautifully of, of your mother trying to fit the karahi in the suitcase and, you know, what, what would have to be removed from the suitcase to, to have the karahi make the journey. I was really... Did you have to make those decisions when you yeah. left your grandmother's things that you had to choose and decide what to bring? You know, I, I don't remember what was left. I remember what I brought with me on the plane. My grandmother... Um, I'd received in those shipments back home a doll that my aunt had sent for, for me for Christmas one year. And so my grandmother had sewn me a dress for the trip and sewn a matching dress for my doll. And so for many, many years, my, my mother kept that dress. It was just the, the exact, you know, uh, replicate of my dress in, in, in a miniature form for my doll. And so that was just an odd thing for me to have that kind of has stayed with me for a long time, you know. So those are, those are the things that I remember. But, you know, while we're talking about your essay, because I really found your essay to be so moving, Grace. It's so beautifully written and it's so powerful. And it resonated so much with um, my own memories of who I left behind. So you tell the story of your best friend um, from when you left when you were 14 years old and being reunited with her when you got back to Guyana. And you thinking about how your life would have been different had you not left and seeing how, her, how different her life was. 
I've had so many of those conversations. You know, I've had conversations like that with um, cousins of mine where we've explicitly talked about, you know, why they didn't leave Guyana and, and how their lives were different. And then others who it's not explicit in the conversation, but it's implicit. It's sort of the thing that's not spoken about. And I, I realize that we who have left oftentimes suffer from a form of survivor's guilt because we, you know, we're able to go on and get an education and, and build careers. And, and it's not to say that people in Guyana aren't doing those things too, but they don't have the same access to those things. And, and oftentimes, you know, all of those uh, troubling statistics about Guyana, about alcoholism, depression, mental health issues, poverty, the people who are left behind are suffering with all of those issues. And we have to confront them when we, when we reunite with those folks. It's a hard thing, and um, it's a hard thing to sit and grapple about uh, with because you have to really own up to the ways in which you failed. You failed the people you love. And so for me, it was survivor's guilt, but it was also about failure and reconciling with that failure. And the only difference between those of us who got to leave and those of us who didn't was somebody got on a plane and somebody didn't, right? There's no other requirements of eligibility other, other than you have a plane ticket and a visa and someone doesn't. And I returned to Guyana after many years and had and returned with all of these expectations on Ika. I mean, up to the wazoo about what this beautiful, romantic, almost kind of a lover's reunion, you know, I think that's what I had, the story I was imagining in my head of what this romantic reunion would be. And it was such a mirror to my face of you didn't really grapple with the lives that were left here. And you cannot show up to the place and expect the reunion to be seamless and like nothing's happened and all of these years hadn't passed. And you can't expect that person either to not want to hold you accountable for leaving. Yeah. All of that you have to, you have to confront. And I'm still struggling with that. Um, that was a really hard essay for me to even decide on if I wanted to make that public. Um, you know, the book, I'm really proud of the contributors in the book. I talked about Maria Del Pilar Caladine. And so the book has memoir in it, memoir essays in it, as much as it has, you know, creative pieces and artistic pieces. So we had a privacy issue to grapple with here because we're talking about people's lives. We're talking about our families' lives. We're talking about big people's stories. We're talking about personal, private secret things. And I remember one of the contributor had taken out something that she didn't want published. By the time we were ready for publication, that person had passed on. And so she reached out and said, listen, now that the person's passed on, I think I will be okay in not being offensive or hurtful to this person. So let's put this part, you know, back in. All of these things we we had to grapple with. And 
you know, that particular part of, of being accountable to the people that we left, of saying whatever forms of apologies we need to say, even if we feel we don't need to say it, of not staying in touch enough, of not staying in touch at all, of forgetting, of erasing, of not doing enough to be helpful. All of that, this book really tries to grapple with my own chapter and the other chapters as well. And it's a really, um, it's a really hard thing to do, but I'm really proud of all of us in the book and, and being brave enough and courageous enough to hold ourselves accountable in that part of the migration arc. Absolutely. And, you know, the part of that accountability is telling these stories. Yes, uh, in the telling, we have to grapple with those issues of privacy and maintaining the dignity of uh, people who are left behind and sharing such intimate details. But I can see in your essay and across all of these works that all of these contributors are telling these stories as a way to come to terms with having left. And as a way of saying, I haven't forgotten, right? And that's part of why it's so, so powerful. So, you know, we've been talking about uh, intermittently here about Keisha Scarville's Mama's Clothes series, which, you know, are, are so dear to me. Um, I first learned about Scarville's work when you did that uh, visually speaking conversation at the Schomburg. And I saw her photographs there for the first time. I was really struck in the book by how Mama's Clothes tells the story of displacement from two homelands, right? So there's the immediate homeland of Guyana from which she's displaced, but there's a more distant homeland of Africa. And so when Scarfield chooses the bright colors from her mother's wardrobe, she says she's attracted to these garments, that, particularly the ones that have bright colors. And she does the self-portraits where you can't see her face, but you can see the clothing in many of them. There's an Im, uh, implicit connection to, an explicit rather connection to Guyana and her mother, um, a mother and a motherland. But I think there's an implicit connection to Africa as well. The, in the brown bodies in Scarville's um, images and, you know, in the footnote to the Kytra News article about uh, the place in Guyana where her mother was born, which is described as Buxton, rich in African cultures. So um, the book really tells that story of the two homelands. And it's not just the homelands of Africa and Guyana, but also of India and Guyana too, right? And, and so this is one of the really, I think, interesting readings of Scarville's work is that we can see that uh, connection to her mother, to Guyana, and then to Africa as a more broader kind of homeland. But because you can't see um, faces in her photographs, you can only see brown bodies. And because those prints also, to me, evoke India, there's a kind of blurring of ethnicity that's going on in her photographs, where it could also be a connection to India. So I, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about that. And, and we could even take it into um, Natalie Hopkinson's essays with her mother as well. But that kind of Africa-India connection to the broader Guyanese story and how that comes across in various essays. And in addition to, you know, the African heritage and Indian heritages of Guyana, 
of course, there's you know our indigenous folks who we call Amerindian. For those of you watching, um, we engage some of the contributors engage their Chinese history as well in the book. A lot of Guyanese people are actually mixed with uh, an assortment of of multiple heritages and multiple backgrounds. I like the word blurring that you use, Anika. I like it a lot because I think that we were very intentional in ensuring that this project featured all of the faces of Guyana without actually stating we are featuring all of the faces of Guyana because to live there and to grow up there and to be from there, that kind of multiculturalism is our norm. And I remember coming to the United States and really encountering what race and racism was for the first time, not in my 14 years of growing up in Guyana, but as an, 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 as an immigrant in the United States. And it it, it floored me. I had nothing, believe it or not, I had nothing in Guyana that prepared me for how race and racism was, was treated in this country because a family of mixed African Indian, Chinese, Amerindian people was the norm in my, in my home, in my own family, in my community, on my block, my church, in my school. And so that intentionality in the book, when you look at the art, when you look at the family photographs, when you look at Keisha's work, Erica's work, Natalie Hopkinson's mother, Serena Hopkinson, talks about her Black and Indigenous heritage really beautifully, is to make that case that to be Guyanese is to come with this multiplicity of, of identities. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, you're, you're absolutely right that so many of us Guyanese are racially mixed and that blurring of ethnicities are, is something that we experience from within our families. In Natalie and Serena Hopkinson's essays, we see that there are also um, cleavages between Guyanese of African and Indian descent, right? And so, you know, um, Serena Hopkinson writes, because I looked ambiguous, I was brown skinned but wore my soft curl straight. I didn't know whether I would be attacked in the streets by Indians or Africans. And she's talking about those moments of great uh, racial upheaval in Guyana in which there were violent riots. We know that part of Guyana's history is one in which during the period of British colonialism, Africans and Indians were pitted against each other. And so, you know, Africans uh, came to Guyana before Indians as, uh, in, as enslaved labor. After slavery was abolished, Indians were brought as indentured laborers and worked for a period of time before kind of quote unquote earning uh, their, their, their freedom, although they were still tethered to the plantation in, in all kinds of complex ways. But from that early period in which Africans were free people, Indians newly free people and Indians were indentured laborers, the British pitted those two groups against each other. And part of the contemporary story of Guyana that gets told again and again is conflict, one of ethnic conflict between those two groups. You know, we can't say that that ethnic conflict does not exist because, you know, stories like Serena Hopkinson's tell us that it does exist in a palpable way, even for mixed people, where she felt like she didn't know um, which group would attack her. 
But we, we know also that there were these intimacies between those groups that gets left out of that narrative, right? And so you're telling the story from your perspective where you, you didn't feel that uh, when you were growing up. Um, this is a really complex story, the story of, of ethnicity in Guyana. And it's one that's absolutely diverse to include Amerindians, to include Chinese, to include Portuguese as well. But those two groups, the two, um, uh, the groups that populate the country the most, right? The, the largest uh, groups, Africans and Indians. And that complex relationship gets brushed over as one of ethnic conflict. And I think that the intimacies are often uh, left out of the picture. And so I think the book does this great job of uh, alerting us to those intimate connections, even when they're troubling and painful. Well, to be quite blunt, your existence and my existence is proof of the, <laughs> of the intimacies and the love, the love between, you know, these two groups. I get, to be quite honest with you, I get very, um, I have a lot of anxiety when, um, when I'm doing these public talks because what I've noticed is, and I'm going to pretend that there are a bunch of people watching, but what I've noticed is this almost default. Whenever you talk about Guyana, not just with my book, but if you ever publicly are having a conversation about Guyana, there's this default to, um, to interrogate people. Well, what about the racism and what about the racial conflict? And that's why I quote Chimamanda Diche's uh, uh, story, her TED talk in the book where she talks about, listen, we've all got to be careful in every single place, not just Guyana, about this notion of a dangerous single story. And she says that it's not that, that these stereotypes of places are untrue. Some of them are quite true, but it's that they're incomplete. And so we have to do the job of countering the dominant narratives particularly if those dominant narratives are quite damaging. And that has been one of the most dominant damaging narratives about Guyana is, is racial conflict between Africans and Indians. I don't think we're saying it's untrue or that it doesn't exist and it doesn't exist at the level at which it exists. I think what we are trying to do, your brilliant scholarship, the work of the artists in this book is to also counter that narrative with these additional stories that show that there are ways in which these people have been loving each other for decades and creating families and creating institutions and building this country up because of those intimacies and, and, the, and that love. And those stories warrant just as much attention as the opposite stories that are the ones making the headlines. And for the folks watching, I quoted, I quoted Professor LeBennett in a tweet where she called out the New York Times um, for, for perpetrating these, these dangerous single stories. It's an article that started out with, oh, in the backwaters of Guyana, where the children are naked and running around the countryside. And you rightfully so called them out for that kind of one-dimensional, dangerous single story of a place. And I was so happy to see you do that. 
Yeah, you know, this is a critical moment for Guyana. Your book arrives at a critical moment, and this is why I'm writing about Guyana now myself. That New York Times article was about the uh, ExxonMobil oil discovery. Guyana is poised to move from being one of the poorest countries in the region to becoming one of the wealthiest countries in, in the region. So as the region's newest kind of petrostate, there's a, a new focus on Guyana. You know, it's long been marginalized in global discourses, even in discourses of the Caribbean. And that New York Times article was basically arguing that, okay, here's a place um, that's about to become very wealthy. What's going on there? And, and what are its chances for success? And one of the things that it points to in terms of why Guyana may not be able to handle this oil wealth is that narrative of ethnic conflict, right? And so we know that Guyana went through this very turbulent elections uh, recently. It's a repeating narrative in Guyana, right? Uh, it's looked as, as a place that um, in which Africans and Indians vie for political power. And the New York Times article was uh, saying, you know, whoever kind of wins out in this latest election will be the group that will benefit the most from the oil wealth, whether the uh, you know, the new government will be Indian or African. That story is, yes, true, but it's also, as you say, more complicated because in Guyana, we have the understanding that nobody wins an election, right? Whether uh, the, 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 you know, candidate is, is of African descent or of Indian descent, nobody wins because there is such rampant corruption. So I wanted to speak out about that in your Times article because I felt that with new eyes on Guyana, in relation to this oil wealth. We're at a moment where we can intervene and correct these representations, which will proliferate. There will be more attention on Guyana as that oil money kind of you know, comes to fruition. And so this is the moment where Guyanese uh, scholars, Guyanese artists need to really have their voices heard and, and, and paint a more complex picture so that those reductive narratives do not become the dominant narratives. And of course, that's what your book is doing as well. And your book will also, everyone watching, Anika's <laughs> future book will also um, be such an important piece of scholarship on this. I wonder, Anika, how do you think um, when that happens, and if that happens, this new boom in Guyana, and I say when and if quite intentionally, um, how it will impact what we're talking about here, how it will impact migration from, from and to the country. You know, I think it will impact uh, migration in all kinds of ways. You know, your book ends with the reverse migration story. And I think that if that wealth comes to Guyana, there will be people who will want to go back. Um, so my own mother is now retired and she divides her time between the U.S. and Guyana. She has a, a house back home in Guyana. So she's already kind of done her uh, reverse migration thing. But I think that other Guyanese who are abroad will feel compelled, and there are already stories being written about this, to go back home to start a business, to own some land, right? To be a part of that kind of... Um, booming uh, economy that we think could 
could occur. So there could be some changes, some shifts in terms of migration, I think, in terms of more reverse migration. I think that's part of one of the things that could happen. Um, what do you think? I honestly don't know. I think this, um, I don't know. I think what's happening to Guyana, if and when this oil boom comes to fruition, is so unprecedented. And unfortunately, if we look at other places as models, if we look at Venezuela, if we look at Trinidad, if we look at places like Nigeria, the prognosis isn't good in terms of what it will do to this country, its sense of community, its sense of solidarity. Um, I, I honestly don't know when, a couple of years before the pandemic, I was there and I was on a panel and we were having this very heated, not me, but I was sitting there as panelists were having this very heated conversation about how do we help the people that are poor and struggling in Guyana with this oil boom, does the government just write them checks? And there were people that were very adamantly against that and people that were adamantly in support of that. And what was interesting that came up about that conversation was this idea of deservingness. Well, does Guyana's poor deserve a check from the government? And it's a conversation that really, really broke my heart that we were talking about people that were in dire need. And my family grew up, you know, I think I took that very sensitively because my family grew up poor in Guyana. My mother's family grew up very poor in Guyana and so did my father's family. So I come from that legacy of vulnerability when it comes to a lower economic class in Guyana. And to, so to see that hierarchy already splitting Guyanese apart in terms of, well, do the poor deserve a check versus do we just move on and forget these folks? Um, it's not encouraging. And I say I don't know because I'm... I'm actually more fearful of what the boom will do for the people that are there than I am hopeful. And I may get into a lot of flack for saying that, but. Well, you know, I, you, everything you're saying, Grace, is, is, you know, part of it is the story of capitalism, right? So we know that the poor tend to not <laughs> benefit um, from from these massive forms of wealth in any any nations that, that have that kind of stark divide in terms of you know the haves and the have nots. I think that you're you're pointing to um, the very fears that I have too. And I, I want to pause and, and first of all say that I so appreciate what you're saying about your family's story because it's it's my story too, and it's oftentimes not discussed in, in academic channels, right? So we 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 learn and we speak and work in these privileged spaces, um, you know, these Ivy League spaces. But my family was very poor as well. My, you know, my mother's family was incredibly poor. And, and these are the people who raised me 
rural, poor Guyanese. And so, yeah, I think that that has shaped my perspective as a scholar, but it's not something that I speak about usually in academic spaces. So I want to acknowledge your, your bravery and, and, and why it's important to say that and to name that. Because when we speak to our students, we know that they come from these backgrounds grounds too, right? And, and they're always, um, they're gravitating to faculty who can kind of understand their stories. So if you and I can understand those stories, albeit from a Guyanese perspective, I think that that resonates with, with, our, with our students, the people we're teaching. But the other part of what you said that's important to me is that Guyanese themselves are having conversations about what, what this oil wealth will mean. And that was part of my uh, criticism of the New York Times article. It was painting Guyanese as sort of being uncivilized, informed, backwards, not connected to the global uh, world around them, when in fact, the article itself shows, you know, there's a story of one woman who's a seamstress, has a business, and she says, you know, look at what happened with oil in Trinidad. We don't want that to happen here. Guyanese are really connected to the world around them. Uh, everyone in Guyana reads the newspaper every day, right? And so we know that that we know what this oil money can mean and all of those hard conversations about who will get uh, the benefits of this are being had in Guyana. And so it's not to say that I'm not nervous about government corruption and whether or not poor people will have access to that wealth, but I do want to emphasize that Guyanese are acutely aware of this themselves. They're not kind of looking at this starry-eyed and they're not uninformed. And that was what I found troubling about the representation in the, in the New York Times. And there's a preponderance of that too, an outsider media machine descending on Guyana for a week, writing the story, publishing the story, and then leaving, right? Yeah. So the, the, media, the media's role in this is also quite um, something that we need to call attention to and have conversations about. Yeah. I think um, we... Uh, I think this is the point where we go to Q&A, but I'm seeing mostly lovely comments and um, confirmations of, yes, that's so true. <laughs> so um, I can scroll through the Q&A and we can also continue chatting if I, um, Alison Hamilton is really finding what both of us are saying, um, really resonating her own story but I'm not seeing any actual questions. So if we want to continue, uh, we can. Okay. Um, yeah. Would I mean, it be, Onika, would it be prudent for you to share a little bit about your next project? Because I think that is so incredibly important, that work that is coming. Mm -hmm. Sure. So I'm, I'm currently calling the book, uh, Global Guyana, Women, Race, and Resources in the Caribbean and Beyond. And it takes the new attention to Guyana around this oil wealth as sort of a jumping off point to say that Guyana is an important place from which we can look out into global processes. And I tell that story of Guyana's connection to global processes in um, through the context of my own family. So part of the book is autoethnographic. I, in the first chapter, I begin with my uh, 
great-great-grandparents. And so as you mentioned before, I come from a racially mixed Guyanese family. My father was of African descent. My mother um, was is of Indian descent. And my whole life, I thought of myself as somebody who was Indian and Black because uh, my father was, was Black and my mother uh, is Indian. I learned, however, that on my Indian side, there had been intermarriage, African-Indian intermarriage, way back. So my first maternal relative who came to Guyana was my great-great-grandmother, uh, who came to Guyana when she was 21 years old and had a child with an African man at a time when that relationship was strictly taboo. Um, it really was not... Uh, permissible under British colonial rule for Africans and Indians to, uh, to, to intermarry, uh, to, you know, to have children together. But there in the birth records, I saw that my great great grandfather on the Indian side was of African descent. And so I look at that as one of those early moments in which Guyanese people were breaking those taboos, were um, defying those rules of social conduct. And I look at the ways in which blackness gets obscured on my mother's side. So why, why was that not part of the story that I knew growing up? Growing up, I always was told that my great grandparents were Indian and they came from India as indentured servants. Not entirely true, right? So I look at that sort of marginalizing of blackness on my mother's side and really grapple with it. And I had all of those tough decisions to make, Grace, about what to share, what's private, right? Uh, whose privileges, you know, whose uh, secrets am I sharing here? I, I use primarily uh, archival research and oral histories with my mother and with her oldest sister to tell that story. But the other chapters of the book look at Guyana's global connections and women's role in those global connections in all kinds of ways. So the second chapter is about the relationship between Guyana and Barbados. And I tell that story largely through the lens of Rihanna. So everybody knows Rihanna as a Bajan superstar, but many people don't know that her mother was Guyanese. And so I look at the long uh, close long history of close kinship ties between Bajans and Barbadians. Um, a long history of migration between the two places. And if you kind of scratch the surface of any family tree in Barbados, you probably will find a Guyanese uh, one or two generations back. And so I tell that uh, complex story uh, through kind of historical and contemporary examples. And the other two chapters of the book deal with resources, oil and sand. Um, those are the two resources that I think are, are kind of the uh, Janice face of what's going on in Guyana. So the oil story is a really big story and everyone's paying attention to it. But sand is a lesser known story. Guyanese sand is being shipped out all over the Caribbean to replen replenish beaches in places like Jamaica, St. Vincent, um, Grenada, um, the Grenadines, all of those places that have bustling tourism economies. Guyana does not. We're not known for our sandy beaches, but we do have this bounty of quartz silica sand that is a hot commodity right now. So I look at where sand is going and the ways in which Guyana gets erased literally, quite literally, because Guyana is being carted off and shipped away. But also when you're a tourist relaxing on those beaches in one of those other places, you don't know that you're lying on, on Guyanese sand. So that's what um, the book is doing. It's, it's, there, there's so many uh, overlaps between your project and mine, Grace. Um, I don't have that element of visual art there, but the 
the struggles with how to tell the story that's so personal, that's so intimately connected uh, to who I am is of course one of the challenges of, of, this, of that project. Thanks for asking so I could share about it. I'm asking because I also can't wait to be in conversation about it with you. Um, we have a question from Sandra, and I think this is uh, a question fitting for both of our, our scholarship and our work, and that is, how are we viewing the challenges of gender versus race or gender and race in Guyana? And so, Sandra, I'll, you know, I'll tell you that to, to do this book on migration and women is largely also a book about about migration data because not only for the first time are there more women migrating than men universally okay so this is a universal movement but since the 1950s 1960s caribbean women including guyanese women have largely been migrating more than men out of the country and that's because more women are becoming heads of their households more women are financially economically responsible for their families for getting jobs and taking care of their families and there was a moment particularly within united states migration history where there was and canada too i believe um, where there was this incredible need for blue-collar workers for home care aides for hospitality workers for nurses for restaurant workers for hotel workers and caribbean women were filling that labor need. And so you have this incredible movement of Caribbean women largely doing the migrating. And then of course, sending back to bring their entire families, which is a, a situation very personal to you, Onika, mm -hmm. sending back to then bring their entire families uh, with them. And uh, during the last administration here in the United States, there was an article that showed how Guyanese families in particular were at great risk because there was going to be a new policy that would severely curtail family sponsorship. Mm -hmm. visas and Guyanese women were largely utilizing family sponsorship visas to bring their families over to the United States and so it would have impacted their work to to bring families together severely so gender is a huge huge part of of our migration stories hence this book. And Onika, you've been doing incredible work with young girls in Brooklyn and the Caribbean in your past, in your past book project. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, 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 you know, echo everything you just said. Women and children bear the brunt of the challenges um, attached to migration in significant ways. So, you know, not only is it women who are increasingly heads of households and kind of leading the, you know, the charge on, on recent migration from places like Guyana, but it's, it's their children who are also disproportionately affected by uh, family separation and, and those issues. So if we're looking at um, migration and if we're looking at family, we have to think about we have to think about gender. We have to think about um, children in particular. 
I also think that in popular representation, uh, women and girls tend to um, bear the brunt of kind of objectified, objectifying and reductive representations. And so, you know, I think about recent representations of Guyanese in popular media, and it seems like I'm seeing a whole new crop of these, whether it's in, you know, a recent episode of the HBO series Lovecraft or in Indian matchmaking on Netflix. Uh, you know, we're seeing Guyanese women represented, I think, for the first time in these interesting but but troubling ways, right? And so part of the story of um, global inequalities and the sort of global South narratives that shape uh, the story of migration is this uh, marginalization of women and this objectification of women that I've tried to, to stress and, and emphasize in my work. Yeah, I've, I've been watching the the emergence of Guyanese women in popular culture. There's there's a whole PhD dissertation waiting to be written. Not mine, someone else's dissertation written to waiting to be written about that. Um, in the Q&A, I'm so heartened to see Onika. There are a lot of Guyanese people uh, based in the UAE and they're saying hello and hi back. It's so lovely to know that you're all there. I'm in New York and Onika is zooming in from California. So we're saying hello to you all. Um, there's a question that asks, I would love to hear your response on this too. How do your notions of home, how have your notions of home transmutated over time and your notions of identity and belonging too? I'll let you start with that because that's a real, <laughs> <laughs> That's a real, a real heavy one. That is a heavy one. So at this point, I've lived in the U.S. for far longer than I lived in Guyana, right? I left Guyana when I was seven and a half years old. I'm quite a bit older than that now. And what's interesting to me is, of course, I'm, you know, a, a scholar who's based in the U.S. And I'm somebody who identifies uh, as African-American. Um, but I always think of Guyana as home. When I think about home, it's Guyana. And I returned to Guyana repeatedly during my childhood. You know, every summer I went home and stayed with my grandmother. Um, when I wasn't in Guyana in the summertime, I was with Guyanese relatives in Toronto. And so I was always immersed in Guyanese communities, whether in Brooklyn, whether in Guyana itself, or whether in, in Scarborough, Ontario, outside of Toronto. So Guyana is home to me. And for that reason, it, it continues to sort of... Um, shape my perspectives and all of my experiences. Um, I think that, that that way of looking at the world as a kind of outsider, so, and, and many Caribbean scholars had this perspective. Stuart Hall, one of my heroes, you know, was able to marshal that in really brilliant ways. But Guyana is this unique place because we're culturally Caribbean, but we're geographically South American, the only English speaking country in South America. We're this really kind of outside child of the Caribbean. I think that's really shaped who I am. You know, it's such a large part of who I am. So, so yeah, uh, my answer is Guyana remains uh, home to me. 
a really interesting thing happens to me when I'm away from Guyana and outside of Guyana. I echo exactly what you just shared, that Guyana is home. When I'm in Guyana, I feel very much like a foreigner in Guyana. And my the fact that I've lived outside of Guyana and left Guyana becomes even more acute when I'm in Guyana. And that just keeps shape-shifting all of the time. I will say this, that, and I was sharing this with you and Anne earlier before we went live, that the long-term rupturing and fracturing that migration enacts on our lives, I think is something that we will spend a lifetime trying to understand. And I think it's okay to be upfront about that, that our notions of home is something for those of us who have migrated, whether by choice or trauma or force, that we will spend a lifetime trying to understand and negotiate this very question that's being asked, what is home and who are you and who are you at this point of your life and who are you in this particular part of the world? And one of the things that I want to continue to do with my work is as open and honest as I can is continue to really examine those long-term fractures and fissures and rupturing that migration has in our lives. And I think there are ways in which that those fault lines show up in very overt ways. And then there are moments where it comes decades later and in very, very subtle ways, but still emotionally tormenting ways. And that work of trying to unpack that, whether creatively or through scholarship or through photography, is what we attempted to do with this first iteration of this project and what we, um, we will hope to continue to do. But I think it's such an important question and I think it's a lifelong it's a lifelong uh, struggle to 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 grapple with that question. We have um, one more question, and it's also a really good, hard one. And I think we'll end with that. It's from Nadia Hussein, and um, she's a first generation Guyanese, born and raised in the U.S., and she's currently a senior at NYU Abu Dhabi. Yay, congratulations, almost done. Good for you. Um, and her question is, can we speak about the colonial legacy as it relates to our work? And how does the colonial history of Guyana affect or present itself in our stories, um, specifically as it relates to women and family structures? And I, you touched on this beautifully, too, in your question, Onika, about this idea of leaving the distant motherland, um, meaning India or Africa. And that's why we named the first part of the book Mothering Lands. And Mothering Lands um, is meant to, of course, engage Guyana, but engage the lands that we all come from before Guyana, China, India, Portugal, um, Africa. Um, Yes, so the colonial histories, how it impacts our work and how, how those colonial histories show up in our work. Well, you know, it, it shows up in many ways, what I was talking about earlier in terms of that, er, that 
early moment of racial mixture in my own family when my great great grandparents kind of um, defied the colonial taboos of the time. So certainly my own family story um, has that uh, colonial kind of uh, legacy attached to it. But I think that, you know, for, for my scholarship and for my current project, the one of the ways in which the colonial narrative continues to shape um, Guyana's prospects for the future is the narrative of discovery. Part of that New York Times article that we talked about earlier is sort of placing Guyana as this sort of uncharted territory. And, you know, Gordon Ramsay has a series called Uncharted, which recently had an episode in Guyana in which it kind of resuscitated all of those colonial era narratives of sort of of a colonial of a white colonial intrepid and explorer going to Guyana and discovering, you know, Amerindian food deep in the jungles. We see that narrative of discovery and the kind of contemporary articulation of the myth of El Dorado uh, coming up again and again around oil, right? So people are sort of discovering Guyana for the first time. Uh, ExxonMobil struck oil, discovered oil there. It's the new uh, El Dorado all over again. What's troubling about that myth is it objectifies the Guyanese people. It places Guyana as, as a site uh, for uh, consumption from the outside, right? It doesn't allow Guyana to sort of uh, control its own destiny. It's just an object to be uh, seen and to be discovered and, and, and taken. So I think that we see those remnants of the colonial era, you know, in, in, the, in the stories about Guyana, I mean, I could go on and speak more broadly about, you know, a quote unquote underdevelopment and, and why Guyana is sort of in the, the, the dire straits it's in right now. It's a story that's that's true of former colonies across the globe. So, um, you know, absolutely that colonial uh, legacy continues to shape the realities of Guyanese people and, and my own scholarship. You know, Anika, I remember I went to Queens College and I remember even before Queens College in primary school and things, I remember, you know, opening these textbooks and seeing, you know, British colonial language and, and stamped in between the covers and, you know, you, the Queen stamps of approval essentially in these books. And I learned about the history of African enslavement and Indian indentureship and Chinese indentureship as chronology. You know, it's one little paragraph in the British textbook that said and slavery was abolished. It was almost wrote in, and slavery was abolished in 1838. And then came the Indians and then came the Chinese. And that was it. That was all you got. And so I also remember growing up in, in, you know, my childhood in Guyana, growing up with a lot of women within my own families, my friends' families that couldn't read or write. And so there was this culture of literacy that was also normal for me when it came specifically to the women that I grew up around. And so for us to come together from Guyana, from Canada, from the United States, from the UK, and author as women, as, as women of all these multiple heritages, as you, Onika, to come. We were just one generation removed from our parents and two generations removed from our grandmothers. This, these were the, their realities, a culture of illiteracy, 
a culture of misinformation or lack of information about their histories and a culture of poverty, right? These are just one generation's removes. And here we are authoring our own stories, right? These are stories about us and by us and for us. And for me, that is a direct countering of that colonial legacy. And it's one of, one of my students um, called this book a radical act of literacy. And I was so, I thought that was so incredibly generous and thoughtful. And when I thought about my own history of, you know, my people in my family, aunts, that couldn't read or write. And here is their niece, you know, with gathering women to author and write our own stories. I think it's a profound statement, the work that you're doing, both in your own authorship and the young women that you allow to tell their stories to in your work. That's also us countering that colonial legacy. Um, we have to go. We're going to save these questions, but I do want to tell you that one of your former students says hello. Ariane Sinat is in the Q&A. Oh, so lovely. Hello. She shared, <laughs> <laughs> she shared some beautiful, um, beautiful, lovely, kind thoughts about our conversation with each other. And I'm going to put the link in the chat for the book one more time. And for everyone who maybe came later. And also as a final uh, thought, say to my friend and brilliant scholar, Onika, thank you. So this was so wonderful. Um, and let me reiterate what I said earlier that the work that you're doing for our country and for the women of Guyana is so incredibly important and so brilliant and so innovative and so dynamic. And I will continue to champion you the way that you have always championed me and showed me and this work great generosity. So thank you, Anika. Thank you so much, Grace. This was such a wonderful opportunity for me. I'm, I feel so lucky to be able to have this conversation with you. And of course, um, so uh, happy to have you as, as a friend. But um, everything I said about why this work is so important um, is, is, is so um, at the forefront of my mind as I look at this book. Uh, it's really you called it a labor of love. I know it was that for you. I know how hard the process of editing is and to bring together this multimodal uh, kind of approach to understanding women and art in the diaspora is a monumental achievement. And so I can't emphasize enough uh, what a valuable contribution this is and how lucky we all are that you brought this book into the world. Thank you so much, Grace. And thank you for letting me be a part of this conversation. So much fun. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for watching us. Good night, wherever you are. Good morning, <laughs> wherever you are. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye, thank you. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.